My notes are not cooperating this morning, so we may be going off the cuff today, which would be not great because we've been doing a lot of scripture today. But there we go. Now they're coming back in. Um, it's good to have you here with us today, and I'm happy to uh, worship with you. If you are in Kidmo, you can head on out. And uh, we are going to hopefully, some um, parents will pick them up when we're done. Um, we're hoping that's going to happen. So, and we do hope you'll stick around for our uh, youth and parent meeting. Um, that's going to be a, immediately after worship. And uh, if you're interested in volunteering again, we'd love for you to participate in that and, and be a part of that. Um, today, I want to continue in our study in Genesis. Um, I want to thank everybody that joined us yesterday for the Trust-Based Relational Intervention Seminar. And um, we're looking forward to doing more of those uh, in the future as they relate to children who have grown up with trauma or some kind of uh, something that has uh, somewhat stunted them in the way that they would have developed normally without that trauma. So um, there are lots of ways that that gets played out in our lives, both for families, but also in our ministry, because we do have also children in our children's ministry here that um, this relates to. Uh, If you know someone who is a foster or adoptive parent, uh, this is something they deal with regularly. And, uh, and so we'd love to talk more with you about that. Um, Deidre did a great job, and one of the best things I think about yesterday was just the engagement and the conversation, and uh, this is, these are real-life issues for people. Uh, this is not just, you know, just theoretical, or this is a good thing to know. This is real-life stuff. So we also appreciate uh, Paul and Evan keeping our uh, children, and, and Rafi, and I'm not sure who all else was in there. Um, either helping or making it harder. I'm not sure which it was, to be honest. If you see little barefoot chalk um, footprints all over the church, uh, they did some chalk drawing yesterday. <laughs> so I love to see those little footprints. Um, anyways, there's a lot going on. Uh, I appreciate your prayers, your notes, um, uh, the food that has been brought. I keep gaining weight. Uh, it's really good food. It's hard to stop eating. Um, and uh, people keep asking how everybody's doing, and, and I think rightly so, the concern has moved, well, how's your mom doing? And, and mom's hanging in there, uh, as if you're our guest. Uh, my dad passed away a couple of weeks ago, and so we're in that process of, of planning for the funeral, which is next week, and, uh, and so she's hanging in there. Just pray for her. This is, they've married 57 years, um, and it's, that's, it's just, that's hard. So um, anyways, uh, I'll share a little bit more about that. If you are interested in in Widow's Harvest, we really would like you to sign up as soon as possible. Um, That way we can let them know how many are coming, which will determine the project that's going to be done. So if you'd like to do that, um, that would help us out. All right. Last week, Scott shared a difficult story in Scripture that we often read, don't understand. We chalk it up to that's one of those weird um, stories, and we're not going to spend any time on it because it's kind of awkward, and I'm not sure how I feel about a God who would do that kind of a thing. Um, That's the story of Abraham being, um, some of your translations say, tempted by God to sacrifice Isaac. And he did a great job in just talking through the reality that Abraham is discovering what it means to follow Yahweh. And to read that story in any other way is going to put you in a place to think, would God really want us to sacrifice children? No, of course not. In fact, as we look back through history, one of the most prominent areas of justice in which Israelites, Jews, Christians have supported is the protection of children. And every um, 
local group around Abraham practiced child sacrifice to appease the gods. If you wanted good crops, if someone was sick and you wanted to be well, um, if you just wanted God to have favor on you um, for you know a, a, the birth of a child or whatever, oftentimes that would involve a sacrifice of a child in usually an incredibly torturous way, although I don't know that any sacrifice could not be torturous, but in a very torturous way. And this was God helping him to discover the kind of God he was. And he was not the kind of God who was going to practice what the other gods that were being worshipped and all of the areas around Abraham did. He's not a God who's going to ask for you to sacrifice your children. Um, but what we have found is that understanding learning in that ancient Near Eastern culture was not uh, like what we're doing here, where I tell you something and now you know something and now you go do something with that. Uh, learning was all about experience. You had to discover something. And, and so if you know any of the stories about um, rabbis, especially the time of Jesus, but even today, their teaching is often riddled with questions. Uh, and it's, it's an often um, comical frustration to say that when you ask a rabbi a question, they're likely going to answer it with another question. Uh, because learning happens through discovery. And God is leading Abraham and many of these things through a, a path of discovering who he is and how he's different than what others are worshiping around him. So, very difficult story uh, it's a story that we don't need to just go, oh, that's interesting. Um, we're glad he provided a goat. There's way more happening in that story than just that. This is Abraham coming into a realization of the kind of God that he's inviting him to follow. Because remember, there is no scripture at this point. Everything is just being passed down orally. Um, and today, I want to finish out Isaac's life, which means I want to take you through um, two primary stories that we're going to find in chapters 24 and 26. Uh, and then we're going to take communion together. Uh, and much of what I want to share with you is that God enters your story when you exhibit a heart like his. And this is one of the disconnects that we have within uh, Christianity today. That God enters our story when we pray, although he certainly does enter our story when we pray. God enters our story when we give enough money away, although God does value generosity at the end of the day, what God's looking for is a heart that mimics his. And what I'm thankful that we see in Abraham's life is that heart does not have to be without error. <laughs> because Abraham made lots of mistakes, but there were some core drives within him that mimic the heart of God that we can learn from today. And Which is why um, if you grew up studying the New Testament, and if you did, you studied Paul and the Gospels, right? That's pretty much it. And then on a special revival week, you did Revelation or, you know, something like that. And they would talk about how all the evildoers are going to get crushed when Jesus comes on a horse and wipes them all out. Um, so when we truly come to the scriptures, old and new, with the heart in which those who wrote it, wrote it in, it is relevant in every age and every time, no matter what is happening around you. Now, what we've discovered are four primary themes, although we could probably add some other themes to it, but four primary themes throughout our study of Abraham's family. And our primary question we were asking is, why Abraham? Why did he choose him? And we saw very early in his life that he was chosen because he was willing to put other people in front of himself. And we saw that in his taking Sarai as his wife. We've also seen that when God called and instructed him to do something, for the most part, he did it. And so whenever God invited him to follow, he followed. We also saw this 
a beautiful picture that is good for me to understand in my own life in that when Abraham would make a mistake, he would learn from his mistakes. And finally, the overarching theme that we see about God throughout all of Abraham's family is that God is faithful even when we are not. God is always, always, always faithful. Now, the story of Isaac is a little bit of an interesting story, and if you're following along, along on the Bayma podcast, uh, you know, we've, ta- we, we've gone through a lot of the stuff that Marty Solomon talks about, and several of you have indicated that you would be interested in one of the Bayma groups, um, and we have, are interested in providing a discussion group. Now, these are discussion groups that are happening, I mean, literally all over the world. Uh, It started just with a podcast of Marty Solomon, who was an evangelical Christian who went and visited Israel, started talking to some of the rabbis and realized, I don't know anything about Jesus. (laughs) Uh, These rabbis who don't even proclaim him as Messiah, they know way more about Jesus than I do. And it led him on a path of discovery of relearning what this is all about. And so he he has Uh, gathered a worldwide um, audience. And I've shared some of the things with him, uh, from him, some of the things we're sharing from different midrashes. Uh, We've talked about some chiasms, though we're moving. There are certainly chiasms through these stories. We're not going to focus on those as much. Uh, uh, The Bema discussion group is one in which you just, you literally go through his podcast. And one episode is somewhere between 30 minutes to an hour than others. And then you just discuss it, and it's, it's a process of discovery, and you kind of go back and forth, and I don't know how I feel about this. And so, so several of you have indicated interest in that. We're interested in providing a group, so you can look for that probably to happen in the next few weeks. We'll figure out what day is best for that. Um, another group that's going to be starting, um, I had hoped by now, but uh, I, it hasn't started yet, is a, we're going to start another starting point group. If you're new to Journey, if you want to learn more about Journey, being a part of a, a group at Journey, um, we're going to be starting uh, that as well, starting starting point, which is a mouthful. Uh, we'll be starting that as well, and I would invite, especially any of you who are new to Journey, to be a part of that. That will be happening in the next few weeks. All right. Um, Isaac's life uh, is really an interesting life because he's known um, for two primary stories uh, that really he's not the main character of the story. <laughs> He's known for the story between Abraham and sacrificing Isaac that we talked about last week. He's known for that story. He's also known for the story in which he's going to pass down a blessing, he thinks, to his oldest son Esau. And there's this switch between Jacob and Esau. And so we typically know Isaac kind of in the bookending of his life. um, But yet there is much that happens within his life that we can gather and glean from. We're also going to see how Isaac continues the heart of his father, Abraham, sometimes to a fault. But there are two primary stories that demonstrate, again, that heart of God that is passed down um, from father to son, and also how God is going to say, the covenant I have with your father, I'm going to keep with you. I'm also going to get a glimpse into how God intends to change the world. All this happens within Isaac's life, and you may be familiar with the stories, and you may not. It's not lost on probably most of us in the room that today is the 21st anniversary of 9-11, and while we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on that, I am going to touch on that a little bit later, unless I forget to. Um, But there is a place in Isaac's story that that even 9-11 fits, all right? 
Okay, let's turn to Genesis chapter 24. We're going to begin with verse 1. For the most part, I'm just going to be taking through these stories. I think uh, the stories speak for themselves, and then I'm going to give you some kind of final thoughts. We're going to take communion, um, worship together, and then we're going to leave. That was fantastic uh, music, and I'm so thankful for our worship team, for the time they put in, for the way that it engages us. But I would just, I would just like to say, I just thought about this while they were, they were doing such a good job, and and I was getting into it, and some of you were getting into it. I know Ken was getting into it because, you know, he gets, in, he, he gets into stuff. And, uh, but, you know, I, can I just say that following Jesus every day is better than the best worship song that was ever written? And, and part of what we're trying to do here is, is not provide the best worship service because we can't. Uh, we, we provide, to the best of our ability, a genuine moment of worship that we can enter into if we so choose. But the daily walking with Jesus is where the good stuff is. Um, so we do stuff here, and it's important that the church does stuff together just like it did in the very beginning. But the, it's the day-to-day walking with Christ that is where the, all the really good stuff is. And um, it is sustaining, and it is empowering, and it brings joy to life. I also want to bring in just an idea of eternal life that may be a little different than some of us may imagine. This eternal life that Jesus brings is for us now, not just when we die. So, um, Genesis chapter 24, beginning with verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, and this is Eleazar, so we've heard of him before. If you'll remember one of the places in which uh, Abraham's kind of frustrated with God because he's not providing you know, the fulfillment of the promise to have a son. He's like, I, the only person I have now left in my house since I've sent Lot away is my chief servant, Eleazar. So this is who we're talking about. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son, from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Then the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? And Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Now, a few just kind of introductory issues that we have to get out of the way um, is the reality that many times marriages were arranged at this time and in this period. So we don't practice that um, in our culture. There are cultures uh, today that still practice arranged marriages. We don't do that. Um, You're fully responsible for the choices you've made in this room. Amen? Uh, You're fully responsible for those choices, all right? And they're responsible for their choice to choose you too. So, uh, but at this point, they are themselves choosing um, who their child spouse is going to be. And so he brings his servant in, and we have to remember really all of Abraham's life within this story because Abraham is still following God. And if you'll remember, Abraham is still moving them to a place 
And it's, it's this idea of not just moving to this promised land, but it's this idea of moving back to God. If you remember when we went back and looked at one of the uh, chiasms in the very first three chapters of Genesis, um, whenever we looked at the fall, we found that the primary point of the story that the author wanted us to see there was God asking the question, where are you? He asked another question, which was, who have you been listening to? And then we have recognized that God has been trying to move humanity back to him since that time. And so this movement is not just movement geographically. This movement is movement back to God. And so what Isaac is saying to his servant, who's going to be responsible to go find someone, is I want you to find somebody with this same heart for God that I have, and I won't. I don't want you to find them here because they they don't know God the way that that I do. I want you to go back to my people that are made of the same kind of things that I'm made from, and I want you to find somebody from there, and, and I want you to bring them. But I do not want my son going backwards. I want him to keep moving forward on this journey that God is taking us. And so you can imagine if you're the servant. Could you imagine if you were a parent? And you were tasked with finding a spouse who would say yes to your child. You may already feel some stress about that reality. And now you are tasked to find a spouse for a child that you've helped raise but is not your child. And so now he's having to go out and he asks a very natural question. Well, what if I find somebody who will take him, you know. But what if she won't come back here? Should I take him back there? No. Don't do that. But instead, Isaac says, God is going to go before you and is going to show you the person that is going to fulfill all of these expectations and all of these requirements. And Isaac is making this hard on Eleazar. But let me just remind us today that we were made for hard things. We live in a culture that tries to avoid hard things as much as possible. And kind of the entrepreneurial world in which I typically work day by day during the week, I, I work with two types of people. I, I work with al- uh, alcoholics. Um, some of them are. Some of them are. <laughs> Workaholics. And, and those who are trying their very best to do as little work as possible and getting the biggest paycheck possible. I, I work with both groups. One group tends to be more successful than the other. <laughs> But we were made for hard things. The idea that we're going to try to escape this life with as little hardship as possible is not the way God has made us. We were made for hard things. Now what we're seeing in this is that Abraham wanted the promise to move forward, not backward. And that meant trusting for harder things. Find someone that is going to be approved by God, that is willing to marry him sight unseen, and will travel back here away from their family to this place, God will show you who that person is. And you will find within your life that when God issues a call within your life, you're going to find that it is rarely the call that says, hey, I want you to do something amazing in the world. I just want you to sit back and watch me do it. Now that preaches really well. It preaches really well to say, all you got to do is sit back and watch God do the amazing But I hope what you're seeing through this story is, yes, 
God does do the amazing, the things that we cannot do, but He also expects us to do hard things with Him. And if we ourselves are unwilling to do the hard things, God is not likely to enter into our story. How do we see this through the story of Isaac? Let's now go down to Genesis chapter 24, uh, verse 10. It says, Then the servant, Eliezer, took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And that name should sound familiar to us. We've heard that name before in the family of Abraham. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the wall of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master. Now there's an interesting sub-story here that we're not fully going to pursue, and it is the journey of faith from Eleazar, who begins in this moment praying to a God of his master, but not yet his own God. And we will come later into this story in which he fully embraces God as his God. For this moment, at this time, and in his life, uh, his master is Abraham. And yet he calls out to him in a prayer saying, the God of my master. O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Now this is a crucial, crucial story. Most people know the story of Isaac and Rebekah um, and the fact that Isaac loved Esau, Rebekah loved Jacob. We had this incredibly dysfunctional moment within their family. This is why you should never choose favorites within your family. And that is true. But that is, there's way more to Rebecca and there's way more to Isaac, just like there was way more to Abraham. And if you'll remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the story of Abraham who has just been circumcised, who's sitting outside his tent, not feeling his best, and some strangers walk up and he demonstrates this ancient Near Eastern hospitality that is still present in places today in which he jumped up and ran and said, let us feed you. And we discovered with the amount of food he was providing them was probably enough for a month's journey. They just gave everything they had. And in that idea of hospitality and generosity, we discovered this is very much the heart of God. And it is said in many ways throughout Scripture, not the least of these, in which Jesus says the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, which is a very truncated definition of hospitality or generosity. Giving even when it costs us something. This is the life that God often shows up for. This is the heart that God says, this is my heart. This is the place when we're praying, God, I will go to church every day of my life if you'll just make this one thing happen within my life. And, and then that one thing doesn't happen, so we just don't go to church anymore. But instead, God is looking for a heart like his at this point of the story and what we are thankful for is that as Jesus enters the story, he not only shows us what it looks like, he gives his life so that we can fully live it. 
It's really an amazing story when we get into the details of this hospitality. And this story would be easy to overlook and say, okay, so I'm not sure if I was going to go pick someone to marry for me or for my son, that the test would be you're willing to water my camels. Right? That just doesn't seem that significant of a character um, you know, discovery. Like, I know everything about you because you water my camels. That just doesn't seem like a big deal. I know when our dog Josie needs water, uh, it takes me about uh, 30 seconds to fill up her water bowl and put it back down where she'll slosh it all over the kitchen. And it doesn't take very long. But what he says is that I'm going to go and at the edge of the city at this well, and when someone, these women come up, I'm going to ask them to give me a drink, but I'm going to wait for the one who says, I'll water your camels. Now, why is that important? And it's important just like the amount of flour that Abraham used to create baked loaves for his guests. It's a lot of water. Now, how much water is that? A quick Google search will show you that a camel can drink about 30 gallons at one time. Now, I don't know how many of you, I know it's the weekend, we don't want to practice any of our math skills at church, but how many camels are there, do you remember? There's 10 camels, and a thirsty camel can drink 30 gallons of water. How much water is he going to need to water his camels? Somebody, somebody do the, come on, do the work. 300. 300 gallons. Did you put that up before they answered? (laughs) We're going to have a math tutoring session after church today. All right. Now let's say she has her jar. Now let's say her jar can carry somewhere between three to five gallons of water. Next slide. We're talking about somewhere between 60 and 100 trips in order to get this water. Sixty to a hundred trips with a jar that would hold three to five gallons of water. So what is Eleazar looking for here? He's asking for a drink of water. He's looking for someone willing to go the distance to water his ten camels. What is he really looking for in this person? Yeah. Thank you. Don, for reading that slide right off of the screen. Jeremy's ready to go. Jeremy has lunch planned. And it is time, it's, it's time to move through this material. All right. Somebody's air, Paul Schreiner's airdropping me a picture of a camel right now. This is why you cannot be on Wi-Fi while you're teaching here today. Our first-time guests, if you're a first-time guest, I apologize. (laughs) I would apologize, but this is how it is every Sunday. So it's not like it's going to get any better than this, all right? This is who we are, all right? Thank you for that. Let's go back to the story, verse chapter 24, verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, another name that should sound familiar to you, The wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring. That's important. 
She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, Drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The men gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. I mean, it's looking pretty good. This is what he asked the Lord to show him. And, I mean, here it's happening. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels, and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me... The Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. So now we have a picture of a woman who's going to marry the covenant bearer Isaac, who's bearing the same covenant from his father Abraham and looking for someone who's going to help him along the path of his life to continue this legacy And they're looking for someone who is incredibly hospitable, someone who is incredibly generous. And she does the very thing he says, which is she's willing to water his camels without being asked. She just offers of herself. Now, the reason it's important that it says she went down the spring, there are different types of wells in this part of the world. And some of those wells would be like a well you would see, you know, anywhere, like a wishing well or like a well in an amusement park or Um, a well at some houses in which you've kind of got this kind of dug out, you know, hole in which you can drag water out either today, we would use a pump, and then maybe they would drop a bucket or a jar. Um, But it says she went down to the spring. So in addition to these 60 um, to 100 trips that she's going to make to water each of these camels, What's likely is that she's having to do it and walk a great distance. I don't know that this is the well that she used, but I have a picture of another well. And it's kind of hard to see. It's a little washed out, but you'll see the well down there at the bottom. But often in these wells, you would have to walk down many steps just to get to the place in which to draw water. So not only is she offering to draw 60 to 100 jars of water, she's offering to walk down 60 to 100 times to the well. Do this. I mean, this is a person who understands generosity. It was not asked of her. It was not expected of her. She was not required to do this. But yet she saw someone in need and she was willing to do what probably no one else would have been willing to do. And what we found in Abraham's story is that every time Abraham demonstrated the heart of God, God showed up in his story. Every time. If we follow down through the story, down to to verse 1, we're not going to cover all of chapter 26 because we just don't have time. 
we're going to find in the first five verses of chapter 26 this beautiful conversation between God and Isaac after this moment in which God is going to show up in his story again and he's going to basically say, I am renewing my covenant with you that I had with your father. Beautiful, you can read it, verses 1 through 5. We drop down to verse 9 and all of a sudden we also learn that Isaac is not the most perfect guy in the world because he does the exact same thing his dad did twice, which was in the midst of a famine, go to a large city and be afraid that they were going to kill him for his wife, Rebecca. And so he tried to pass her off as as his sister. Hey, it worked for dad twice. Maybe it'll work for me too. We're not going to read that again. The story doesn't actually go that way, by the way. Instead, uh, Abimelech sends him away and says, ha ha ha, no way I'm doing this. I'm not falling for this thing, this trick. And sends him away. And then at verse 12, we find that Isaac goes on his way and things are going really, really well for him. We, we see a part of this story that maybe we've seen the heart of Rebecca and what I've just shared, but we're going to see the heart of Isaac in this next story, one in which you may be familiar with, but one that is easily overlooked. Chapter 26, verse 12, And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds, and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. I mean, he life is good for Isaac. The people in the areas around him are getting nervous. They filled in his wells to encourage him to move on. They've also, the, Abimelech has said, uh, you just need to leave. You're too strong to be near us. You just need to leave. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But... When Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called his name Sitna, and he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called his name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father, fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. I don't know how you would have handled this situation within your life. I would have been a bit frustrated. It's your family's wells. They've already been dug. Somebody has filled them in because Abraham has died. Legacy is over. Lineage is done. Whatever happened for Abraham will not happen for his son. And so Isaac begins the process of unearthing these wells, which is essentially just starting over. 
I mean, he knows where the water is, but he's got to get back down to it. And so they open up a well, which is necessary for all of his herds. It's also necessary for all of his family and his servants. And every time he unearths one, the local people come across and say, oh, that one's ours. We'll take that one now. What would you have done? I mean, we would be tempted to say, that's my well. Like, I mean, that was my father's well. This is my land. God's given me this land. Uh, I think not. I will keep it. We're going to station sentries around the well to keep these local people out. This well is ours. But that's not what he does. Instead, he moves on and he digs, opens another well. And the exact same thing happens. Now, if we wouldn't today in our current modern Western mindset, if we wouldn't have moved on from the first well, we're certainly not moving on from the second well. Like, we're going to make our stand. We are wealthy. We are mighty. We can take care of these herdsmen. We can take care of them pretty easily, actually. We can make them disappear. (laughs) Nobody will even know they were around. But that's not what Isaac does. Isaac says, okay, I'm going to go build another one. And he goes and he digs another well, but on this third well, they do not contest. In all likelihood, he's moved far enough out of their territory that they're willing to give it up. And that moment, he worships and he pitches his tent and he praises the Lord and he says, God has made us room. And in this, we see a character aspect of generosity and hospitality in the heart of Isaac in which he's willing to say, if you are going to take this from me, you can have it. Always more. Can you think of a New Testament story in which Jesus may have encouraged us to have had a similar heart? If someone asks you for your coat, should you keep it? Because you paid for it, you worked for it, you maybe even you made it. He says, no, give it to him. Just let him have it. And, and, and in fact, don't just give him that. Give him your shirt too. Just, just be generous. Just give. And this is, I am convinced, one of the reasons that Christianity is in decline in modern Western culture is because no one really likes this type of heart when we live in a culture that says take what you want take what you want in fact you know one of the most popular marketing campaigns today is one that says it's all about you we love those marketing campaigns because we want it to be all about us. I mean, the, that's the, our core challenge within our life is that we make it all about us. I, that's the whole antithesis to love your, yourself. I, I'm just going to take care of me. I'll, I'll love you when I'm taken care of and I just have extra love to give. But that is not the message of the Old Testament or the New, certainly not that of Jesus. It doesn't ring as something desirable in our ears today. Give me the wealth and I'll follow you. Give me the power and I'll follow you. Make all my paths straight and I'll follow you. But if they fill in your well, just go dig another one somewhere else. You know how long that took? Just go do it again. Now this creates some challenges for us. Because it's easy to preach this sermon and go, now, go and be generous. 
And yet, it is hard for us to mimic this type of heart in our everyday lives. How do we do this? Well, a simple answer would say, well, it's just the Holy Spirit. And that is absolutely true. But there's also a part of this life in which God is drawing us back to that is completely different from what everything else in our life is drawing us towards. And He wants us to keep moving because He knows if we get stuck in this world, we are going to embrace ways of living life that destroy life, not bring life. And for some of us in this room, myself included, we have embraced a way of thinking about stuff, about people, about life, and about nation that ignores the heart of God. And somehow we're going to have to find our way back or this thing that we've labeled Christianity will die and quite honestly should die because much of the things we label as Christian aren't actually very Christian at all. Now I know I'm meddling, but this is part of coming to Scripture. When you come to Scripture and it doesn't meddle, you need to read it again. When you come to Scripture and it doesn't offend you, you need to read it again. When Scripture just validates every life choice you've made up until this moment, I question whether you've actually read the Scripture. And even as I preach this, I preach this as someone who desires to practice these things and yet regularly do not. Scripture, the heart of God, meddles with us. What we see both in the story of um, Rebecca and in the story of Isaac is that when we show a heart like God, God shows up in our story. Now recognize that that doesn't happen just like that. And every one of us here, maybe our prayer may be as we close out our service in just a few minutes to be like, God, just give me a heart like yours. Sometimes getting a heart like God's means digging out another well. Sometimes having a heart like God's is forgiving someone yet again. Having a heart like God's is letting someone take advantage of you again. And that does not feel good. It doesn't feel fair. It doesn't feel right. And if God's coming back on horseback during the rapture at at the end days, he's going to kill all the evildoers. That's the God I want, but not the one that has to go dig another well. This story is very interesting because I I said I want to share with you the story of Isaac's life also tells us how God intends to change the world. And as you can probably imagine, piecing together what I've talked about so far, He intends to change the world through generosity. This is how He's going to change the world. This is what happens next. Now keep in mind, what's happened so far is every one of the local rulers has said, we need you to go. Um, We're going to fill up your wells because we don't want you near us. You're too big, too strong, too mighty. You just need to go, get out, leave. And then we have Isaac who's going and showing this humility of saying, okay, sure, 
We'll go do another one. And then this happens. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with, with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Pekul, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me, have sent me away from you? In other words, you told me to leave. Why are you coming to visit me? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. And in the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from this, from him in peace. You know, the promise that God made to Abraham was not just that he would have a lot of kids, but that he would bless the whole world through him. And interestingly, he could have taken this position from force with force because he was always already stronger than everyone around him, and he could have gotten their respect by conquering them, by stationing his servants around the wells, and he could have taken all of this this is not the way God's heart works. But instead, this unusual thing happens. He gets taken advantage of time and time again. And in his persistence and in his humility and in his willingness to love those around him, they recognize we want what you've got. Not just his wells. We want to be blessed by the Lord too. And it leads us to this uncomfortable question to ask ourselves, so what does that look like for us today? Because this is God's heart then, it's God's heart today. And Jesus was the ultimate example of this when he gave his life for us all. That's why we're going to take communion. He sacrificed his life. He was tortured and killed. And while he could have commanded angels to come to his defense, he did not. Instead, he let the unthinkable happen. This is the heart of God. This is what God wants for us and for our lives. God wants to change the world through loving others and living generously. This is how He plans to change the world. Is that how we're living our lives? Will the world be changed by the way we're living our lives? Are we loving others and living generously? I would dare say if we were to ask just a random person off the street, hey, would you say that that um, Christians uh, love others and live generously? Some would say yes, and I know lots of people that do. I know lots of Christians that love um, others and live generously. I know lots of them do. But I, I would not say that the general tenor of Christians that reaches the ears of people who don't believe in Christ would say that's what Christians do. Like we get mad at a lot of stuff. We boycott. We, we get mad when people want to cancel us, but we want to cancel them. I mean, we a lot of times do the very things we complain about others doing to us. And Isaac gives us a model to say, in humility, you can change the world. 
and God's got your back. God's doing something within us in His persistence when things are hard. Loving even when people are unlovable. Which may lead you to a natural question which I come to, and that is, well, God, that just doesn't sound like a life that's very enjoyable, to be quite honest. It doesn't sound like something I want to spend my time doing. I like the message of it's all about me. I like doing as little as possible. God, I would really like everyone just to get in line and let me be the main character of the story, and their role is just to support my story. I would love that. I mean, that feels good and easy, and it's not hard, and that's kind of the life that I would like to have, and yet that is not the life that God calls us to. And it brings us to the strange place of what is eternal life. And for most of us, we grew up in a church that said eternal life is when you get to go to heaven after you die, and if you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved and you'll get this great eternal life like you'll never die. And yet in an ancient Near Eastern culture, eternal life was vaguely about afterlife, mostly about current life. And so this eternal life that Jesus says, I have given my life so that you may have eternal life, he's talking about your life right now. And there are some people, and and as I look around the room, there are some people in this room that I just, God has done an amazing work in you, and you're just generous. And I think... I just, I hope one day I have the same heart of generosity in which when it costs me something, I don't even think about the cost anymore. All I do is think about how much I want to give. Like, I know people like that. I, to be honest with you, is not me most of the time. Sometimes it is, and it's an increasing um, number of times, I'm happy to say, as I hope for the rest of my life, it will continue to increase. But I'm not there yet. This is where God wants to take me. To a place in which you can dig another well and still love your life. A place where you don't have to be top dog and you can love your life. A place where you can live and give and be taken advantage of and say, you know what? Okay. Because, I mean, this life is amazing. And for most of us, myself included, we think that's a fairy tale. Because I don't feel that way. I don't think that way. When I get taken advantage of, I actually get mad. I don't think, here, yeah, have more. I get mad. I spent my weekend, a lot of you know I have a, a, a job outside of Journey. I build websites and do all kinds of different things. I host several dozen websites for different organizations. And one of the worst things that can happen when you host websites for other organizations is that somebody from some other part of the world or even down the street messes up your websites. And this is a constant problem. Anybody that works in the digital world, this is a constant growing problem. And if you're looking for some kind of career in the future, cybersecurity is a pretty secure future right now. And But anyways, they got in. But what happened differently this time, which has never happened to me before, is they they got into my upper level server, not just an individual website, and deleted all my websites. I found it out Friday night at six o'clock. So several dozen websites are now gone, and you can imagine organizations aren't real happy about that. They didn't ask me to host their website for this to happen. 
So the whole weekend was spent restoring those. And can I tell you my first thought was, God, thank you for letting me do this. (laughs) That wasn't my first thought. That was not my first thought. I was incredibly frustrated. I've been wrestling with this hacker now for several weeks. He, he, he's very honest with who he is. He's a guy in Yemen, and uh, he got me. He got me good, and, but yet I will say what God has done in my life is to say, you know what, it's okay. I'm going to fix this. And so I spent the next 18 hours fixing it. Now, it makes no sense for me to say, well, that's just what God wanted, and if he does it again, I'll just do it again. I'll build another well. And if he does it again, well, I'll just build another well. This is honoring of God. I mean, I, I could say that, but then, like, everybody would fire me. <laughs> you know, I have to take actions to keep that from happening again. But I don't have to end those hours of having to fix that thing that I didn't have to fix at 4.59 on Friday afternoon. I can say, but life is good. I can do this. And in there, somewhere, muddled between all of that anxiety and frustration and unfairness and injustice is eternal life mixed in. And when you experience frustration and unfairness and injustice within this life and in this world, the promise that God is giving when we have a heart like His is that you will experience eternal life in those moments even when it's unfair. It's not right, and you shouldn't have to do it, just like Jesus shouldn't have had to have given his life for us. In there somewhere is a change in the way we see people and the way that we see the world, the way that we see our lives. The heart of hospitality, of giving to others, especially when it costs us something, is one of the secrets to eternal life. It is not something you have to endure. It's one of the secrets. Giving dignity to others, loving others, being generous to others, causes us to experience fullness even when we have to dig another well. This is the mystery of eternal life. Even when you have to dig another well, you are made full while you dig. Because we're changing the world. We're not changing the world through might. We're not changing the world through power. We're changing the world through love and generosity. Jesus talks about generosity in another way, and he's asked, well, how much, like, at what point do we stop? Like, for me, like, I, I have to, you know, I can't, I can't not fix the problem I had this weekend. I have to fix it. I, like, I can't keep dealing with that because they can't keep dealing with those problems. That's why I have a job doing what I do. But what about the things you can't fix? Jesus talks about forgiveness in this way in which he says, if someone wrongs you, causes injustice to fall upon you, is not fair to you, takes from you, is not willing to give to you, even if they don't ask for forgiveness or want forgiveness, you are to forgive. And the disciples ask the same questions we ask, which is like, I mean, how many times, God? I mean, come on, how many times, Jesus? And his answer was, you remember? Or in other words, every time. Every time. This is the generosity of the heart of God. And we can come to church and we can come to Bible study 
And we can love the music. And we can love that somebody says something about Scripture in a way that really touches us and still miss the heart of God. But if we're going to change the world, and Jesus said, you're going to change the world, we're going to change it in the same way He changed the world around Isaac. And there's going to be a lot fewer people that are willing to walk that path than the path of power and wealth and intimidation. A lot fewer people willing to do that today. And that's one of the reasons we're seeing what's happening in the church happen, in my opinion. God does much, but He expects us to do something too. That is so incredibly important. When we look at the shaping of the church, it is, I, I, I just, I bring this up. Um, carefully as if I am somehow better and I'm not on this 21st anniversary of 9-11 I remember to this day where I was when it happened just like you did if you were alive and older than you know six when it happened I was I was at Bojangles with my friend Ian and they had a tv up in the corner it was the old square kind. You know, we didn't have HDTVs yet. And we were eating a biscuit, and we it was our weekly time just to meet and talk. And when we watched the second plane hit. After the first plane hit, everybody gathered around the TVs. After the second plane hit, everybody scattered and left. We were I lived in just outside the beltway of Washington, D.C. at the time. The plane was headed to the Pentagon. We all scattered to get our families, and we don't know what's happening here. And it was a tremendously traumatic time for those who were affected immediately, those in the buildings, those first responders, you know, family members then of those, and then I didn't know anybody that died in in the attacks. So they kind of spread out in concentric circles. And yet even to this day, we have a call to put down those people. You know, I love a good revenge movie. I mean, some of our most famous movies are the ones in which someone is wronged and then they come back and they give tenfold what they receive. I love a good revenge movie. Karate Kid was a revenge movie or a bully movie or whatever. I mean, there's just something about, oh, oh, oh. I love a comeback story, whether it be the Karate Kid, whether it be Tennessee football, you know, big win yesterday. I love a good comeback story. But the comeback story God's telling is a different type of story. And unless the story he's telling, the story won't be as compelling. Not as compelling to give and to sacrifice to be taken from. But this is the story that God's telling over and over again. Much of our modern American church life was built back in the 50s. It was built after the Depression. It was built after World Wars I and II. We had been victorious. We had entered into a very prosperous time for our nation. And the church just, just layered right in prosperity, the military, and let me just say, I, we honor 
at our church, we honor those who serve our nation, who give their lives for people to protect. And we've seen even in this series where God will um, act in very strong ways to undo injustice in the world. We've seen where Isaac dug another well. We saw where Abraham went to war. So we've seen kind of two sides of that coin. But this mixing of might and power and wealth is how we have, you know, I talked a couple of weeks ago, preachers with $1,000 belts on and $5,000 shoes on. If you follow God, you can have what I've got. The heart of God is to give you wealth and power to be able to intimidate and never be taken advantage of, to be better than everybody else out there. That's just not the God of the Bible. It's just not it. There's a reason as we get closer to that that fewer people want to follow it. But if you really get taken by the story, we were, by the way, I was talking with with Jake and, and Deidre yesterday and if Emma had been there, she really would have gotten in on the on the conversation. We were talking about, well, why didn't Eleazar help her bring the water up? <laughs> Which, like, is a legitimate question. Like, you're just going to sit there? And, um, but the point was not, the point of that story was not what's fair. The point of that story was the heart of Rebecca. That was the point of the story. So it wasn't like he, you should have helped. You should have done your part. The, the point was she went over and above, willing to give of her time, willing to give of her strength, willing to give of herself to do this thing. This is what God is inviting us to. I don't know what that looks like for everyone. I don't always know what that looks like for me, but this is the heart that God is drawing us towards. And I pray this is what captures our hearts as we move forward together. Right? God enters your story when you show a heart like His. Father, I thank You that You have given us so many good examples of this type of heart. I, I thank You for Your consistent forgiveness um, when I don't, and yet You still love me. I thank You for the examples in this room of those who just give generously over and over and over again. And, and ah, the testimony of doing it with joy Father, I pray that You would show us this way of eternal life is a way that is good and is a way that is full and fulfilling even if we have to go dig another well. Help us to change the world in the way that You endeavor to change the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Together. Um, over the next song. And uh, Scott and I are going to be up front. Um, if you need gluten-free, we have all the bread is gluten-free. Um, and we would invite you to come and take communion and to remember this heart of generosity is no better evident anywhere in Scripture than in the life of Jesus and Him giving His life for us. All right?